Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Welcome to a new year. We open with a fun topic, folklore. We talk with the author of a new book, Folklore Rules. Lynn McNeil is our guest. She holds a Ph.D. in folklore from Memorial University of Newfoundland, teaches both online and face-to-face folklore classes. She teaches at Utah State University. She's co-founder of and faculty advisor for the USU Folklore Society. And she studied varied subjects including ghost hunting, animals in folklore, internet folklore. Her research interests include digital folklore, legend and belief, and teaching folklore. And she got her master's uh, here at Utah State University. Uh, I think your thesis was uh, folklore and cats. It was, actually. And, it you know, the I stumbled upon that topic in a terribly embarrassing way, which was that I was given an assignment to explore our folklore archives, the Fife Folklore Archives here at USU, uh, for any topic I was interested in. And I walked in and found one of our more exciting collections. It's the Wayland Hand Collection of Popular Belief and Superstition, and it's this massive card catalog full of three by five index cards. I mean, hundreds of thousands of index cards, each of which has a single superstition documented on it. It's really, really fun to explore. So I decided to look through these and I noticed that like every drawer was labeled cat. There was like cat and different colors, black cats, and there was cats and holidays. And and so I kind of went, well, clearly this is what I should look at. And it Turns out it was short for catalog. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> sadly, um, I had to admit that in my project. But what I did end up finding was, despite not quite the breadth I had assumed, um, a real wealth of beliefs about cats from all over the world. And as a supernatural belief scholar, anytime you encounter a cross-cultural pattern of belief, things start to get interesting. Mm. You know, it's easy to... Uh, assume culturally that people believe in certain things because their culture tells them to. So, you know, in American culture, we have the tooth fairy and things like that, though obviously adults aren't believing in that. Um, And an early assumption, scholarly-wise, was people believe in things because their culture tells them to. But if something is cross-cultural or exists even without a cultural belief system, I was finding things like, regardless of cats being affiliated with witches or devils or anything like that, People still identified them as creepy. They talked about Hmm. the creepy cat stare and cats, you know, dogs being friendly and good human companions and cats being this, you know, sort of standoffish, eerie creature. Um, And when you see something like that where people are all sharing the same belief regardless of cultural affiliation, you kind of go, okay, maybe there's something more than culture Hmm. happening here. Maybe there's an experiential basis for this belief. So I took some really fun folklore theories that deal with experiential sources and applied them to folklore about cats. It was really a fun way to earn a master's degree. And what, what were your findings? What, 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 what is it about cats? Well, in what I found um, was that people are looking at this particular quality that cats share in an abstract sense with the supernatural, which is liminality. You know, if we think about the creatures that we call supernatural, they sort of exist betwixt and between. So ghosts are dead, but obviously in some significant ways not dead, right? Um, fairies, the the fairy folk, are both seen and unseen, there and not there. We see a lot of supernatural stuff sort of existing in these in-between spaces. And I started doing some physiological and um, biological research on very basic stuff. I'm not a biologist by any means, um, into cats and finding that experientially cats are really liminal they're you know 
technically a nocturnal animal, but we interact with them during the day. They are much, much more so than any other domesticated animal, um, very close to their wild relatives. When, um, when people find cat remains in the wild, really the only clue as to whether it was a domestic or wild cat is context because they're, they're, they're so indistinguishable from their wild counterparts. And so we really do see cats sort of embodying physiologically a lot of that liminality. And culturally, when we see something that is uncategorizable like that, we tend to lump it with the supernatural, with all the other uncategorizable things that we understand about the world. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're seeing is a, a reinforcement of culture and experience. People's culture tells them that cats are, in addition to being, you know, regular domestic animals. They also have this sort of other side to them that makes them supernatural, creepy, eerie, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we don't do that with a lot of other animals. Dogs don't necessarily have that um, in the same way. And so we view cats differently. We sort of put them in this other category as well that then is fueled by our experiences with them. You know, we've mm -hmm. all seen, well, I don't know if we've all seen it. I've certainly, and a lot of people I've talked to have seen it when you're in a room everything's quiet and let's say there are two cats in there and all of a sudden they both just turn and look at the door at the same time and you're sort of <laughs> left going oh, what 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 is it what what are you seeing um and you know their eyes perceive differently than we do they hear things differently than we do and chances are it was a totally natural thing they were seeing but it reads to us as sort of this extra normal ability and so we we categorize them accordingly and a lot of Beliefs about cats mirror beliefs about vampires, mm. zombies, witches, all of these things. And it makes a lot of sense when you look at it in that experiential vein. What are some examples? Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, black cat crossing your path mm -hmm. or fear of the cat sucking the breath out of the baby. You know, those, what, what are some of the superstitions you found? Um, a lot of those as well. A lot of, you know, cats. Um, interestingly, it's black cats here. It's white cats in other part of the world that are bad luck. Cats crossing your path, certainly. There are... You know, superstitions are, are wonderfully simple in sort of that cause and effect model. They give us if this happens, then this will happen. Um, oftentimes, there's an if then and unless. So there's actually remedies for if a black cat crosses your path, you're supposed to turn around clockwise three times and spit on the ground. Um, spit is a wonderful remedy for most <laughs> supernatural bad luck experiences. It turns out strange, but true. Um, there's a belief that um, vampires and ghouls are created when cats jump over dead bodies. So if, you know, a body were laid out for a funeral or something like that, if a cat managed to walk across it or jump across it, you've got a vampire. You know, you can just expect it, bring out the stake mm. right away. Um, lots of things like cats uh, calling up storms for ships. Cats often would live on ships as vermin killers and things like that, but would also often be thrown off of ships for mm. potentially causing storms or bringing on the wrath of some supernatural entity. Um, one of the main ones that that isn't so often stated as a superstition, more of a generalized folk belief, is the idea that cats can see the dead, that they can see ghosts, they can see things happening on other planes, and thus our interactions with them when they appear to be doing that sort of, you know, make us feel all creeped out, stuff mm. like that. Yeah. We're talking with Lynn McNeil. She's assistant professor at Utah State University, and uh, her interests include animals and folklore, uh, ghost hunting, internet folklore. We're going to talk about all of those. We're talking about Mormon folklore, including funeral potatoes. 
Uh, and, uh, of course, folklore in the digital age. Her master's here at Utah State University was on uh, folklore and cats. We've uh, begun the discussion talking about that. Her book is Folklore Rules. It's a new uh, breezily written uh, text for introductory text for students on folklore. We'll get into the question of what is folklore. Um, and Lynn McNeil writes... Uh, what do the creation myth, jump rope rhymes, 4th of July barbecue, and some bathroom graffiti have in common? You'd be hard-pressed to put those together, but if you do a definition of folklore, you can do it. You're welcome to join this conversation. A couple of ways you can do that. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear your superstition story, your cat story, your folklore uh, story. Uh, you can join us by email as well to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. I wanted to broaden this uh, to, to superstition mm-hmm. in general. And you would think in today's scientific age, where everybody learns the scientific method and you prove everything out, and uh, we're, all, we're all scientists in essence, superstitions are still out there? Oh, absolutely. And it's it's fascinating. People really create this dichotomy between science and, and folk belief. And the fact is, is that it's it's really not a dichotomous relationship. You know, they, they exist side by side. And it's, a, it's one of those common misunderstandings of folklore to assume that the word folklore means not true. And therefore, science, we always assume, means true, though, of course, science has been wrong in the past and folklore has been right, mm-hmm. um, and w- which means that we can't be talking about two totally separate things. Um, but what we really see happening as scientific knowledge grows is that what we classify as the supernatural is is shifting. So if we if we think about the word supernatural, all it really means is outside what we know or understand about the natural world. And what we know and understand about the natural world is changing all the time. So we, you know, at one time, lightning may have been supernatural. Now it's natural. We know how it works. And I think we're always going to be at a point where there's something that we can't explain, but that we experience on a regular basis. And, you know, if you look deeply, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, if you look at people's supernatural beliefs, we tend to equate the supernatural with irrational, misguided, deluded, delusional, those sorts of things. Um, Oftentimes people are being surprisingly rational when they, I mean, and there are certainly people who, you know, want there to be a supernatural reality and sort of see it everywhere. Most people um, begin their supernatural stories with a whole bunch of qualifiers that show just how rational and smart and not inclined to believe in the stuff they are. And when we as folklorists look at those stories, we can see them laying the groundwork for, I'm a thoughtful, intelligent person. I believe in science, but I think my dead grandpa visited me last night, hmm. y- you know, and and it's it's important that we take into account the context of that belief, which is, I, I don't believe in ghosts, but I do happen to believe that my grandpa came back and visited me, right. which uh, it sounds contradictory, but that's the, the reality of the way that people approach these subjects a lot of the time. Hmm. So you write in the book, uh, the good news, if you're a student of folklore, is there will always be folklore. Oh, yes, absolutely. And that, you know, a part of that gets at what you were just addressing, that difficulty of defining folklore. Um, as a field of study, Folklore suffers a lot from misunderstandings of what it means. You know, if I walk into a class in theoretical physics, I know that I don't know what theoretical physics is, right? So my mind is I'm ready to be told, you know, what that's happening or what, what's happening in that, in that class. A lot of people similarly don't know what folklore is but assume that they do. 
And that's one of right off the bat, any folklore class has to sort of not fill in a void, but erase a spot in people's understanding of folklore and then fill it in with something that's related, but but generally different or or new. And when most people think about folklore, they think about the past. They think folklore um, is from the past. They think of rustic rural life peasantry, you know, the Grimm brothers traipsing across the German countryside, collecting, you know, untouched tales from the uneducated peasants of Germany. Um, we tend to think of things that aren't true. And really, all folklore is is the informal and traditional side of expressive culture. That's what we're looking at here. So we have certain cultural forms like narratives and songs and art and material objects. And those exist on formal and institutional levels like novels and films and symphonies and, you know, museum art. And they exist on informal levels like folktales and urban legends and jokes and bathroom graffiti. And when we talk about folklore, we're talking about that whole informal, traditional realm of cultural understanding. So the cultural stuff that we learn from each other rather than from our institutions. So, you know, we read novels in the public education system. We hear urban legends from our friends. We hear political jokes at a party. And one of the things that that does that that makes folklore so exciting to study um, is that folklore really grows to represent cultural consensus. It's a real good barometer for what a particular group, whether that's a family or a campus community or a neighborhood or a state or a nationality, um, thinks about something because when something relies on word of mouth, if it's not interesting, it disappears. You know, you can have a novel that high school students are required to read that they're all disinterested in, but because it's in the public school canon, they're going to read it. If people are not interested in a political joke or an urban legend, they're going to stop telling it. So conversely, if they're telling it, it's because it, it's saying something to them or for them. It's it's representing a, a belief or a value that they have. And so as folklorists, we can come in and, and understand those things contextually, again, looking at the way people present these things um, and understand a lot about groups of people. It's a really, a really excellent form of expressiveness if you're interested in anthropology, sociology, even economics, history, psychology. Uh, you write in the book that um, undergrads come to folklore, they inherently know it's cool. Mm-hmm. They feel like, you know, I want to take the folklore class, you know. Uh, their parents may be less excited. <laughs> you know, how how is Junior going to earn a living if they've decided to go into folklore? What, what, what do you say to the parents? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, it's folklore is one of those fields that has a surprising number of applications. There are two main tracks career-wise that you can take as a folklorist, and now I'm speaking, of course, as folklore as a major area of study. You know, here at Utah State University, we offer a master's degree in folklore. At the undergraduate level, we offer a minor. So usually that minor is paired with some other degree program. It actually makes a surprisingly successful pairing with things like business administration, um, uh, psychology, things like that, because it it adds in this unexpected area of expertise where you can say, you know, I understand people's interactions on the informal level. Marketing students should always study urban legends, for example. At the master's level, when you're making a a real solid career just out of folklore, you're pretty much looking at at two opportunities, either becoming a public sector folklorist, working with arts councils, working with local cultural preservation institutions and things like that, um, or 
going into academia. And in that sense, it's a lot like an anthropology degree would be where, you know, you can do museum work, you can do sort of on the ground, out in the community work, or you can be researching, writing articles, doing field work, interviewing people uh, on the more academic side of things. So, and, and again, as a complement to other areas of study, it, you know, one of the, um, best descriptions I've ever heard of what it's like studying folklore or being a folklorist is that it gives you sort of this double vision as you're out in the world. So, you know, and a lot of students report this after taking introduction to folklore, they kind of go, I'm seeing it everywhere. You know, there's, I, I hadn't thought about it, but there's folklore everywhere. There's, you know, traditional statuses on Facebook or games that people will play on Facebook and they'll post status updates, you know, that that, you know, post this in your status for the next 15 minutes or something like that. And there's jokes that their friends are telling and urban legends that they get through email. And it's sort of like you're you're participating. I mean, this is just normal, interactive conversation. These are not, you know, high, fancy, esoteric concepts. This is just everyday life. And this is the way we express ourselves using shared forms in everyday life. And to be able to both participate in that and and really be aware of it and what it's doing. You know, when you're at a party and someone tells a political joke, you can look at them and say, what What was that doing? Are they testing the waters? Are they pushing the envelope? Are they, and, and, and all those contextual clues are so important. Someone can tell a joke that they don't find funny. And you know they don't find it funny because of the expression on their face and their body language and their stance. And if as a folklorist, all we did was write down the words and label it joke, Someone finding it in a book would say, oh, this must be funny. The person who told it thinks it's funny. That's what jokes are. They're funny. But in, in folklore research, we need all that other information. What, what was their facial expression? What was their stance? How did the people around them react? And how did they react to those reactions and all of that sort of performative context? Not performance on stage, just, again, everyday life performance how do we give and receive these expressive forms with each other it makes folklore really exciting to study hmm. we'll talk more following a break lynn mcneil is with us uh, she has a phd in folklore from memorial university of Newf- newfoundland uh, teaches both online and face-to-face uh, folklore classes she got her master's here at utah state university and her bachelor's at uc berkeley uh, we are talking about uh, folklore uh, she studies uh, ghost hunting animals and in folklore internet folklore We'll explore especially uh, folklore on the Internet. And uh, I assume it's alive and well on the, on the Internet. Uh, alive now. and well and thriving, yeah. So we'll talk more about that, and you can join the conversation as well at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. What's a millennial? The simple thing that I hear the most is just like, they're lazy and technology addicted. And yes, part of me is like, wait, this is how I'm spending my youth, like checking Twitter on my phone. But part of me is also like, you'd be doing it too, if you were our age right now. The next greatest generation? That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Coming up next, this morning at 10 o'clock. And a programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now introducing 100% whole grain bread with raisins, oatmeal date bread, millet pan loaf, and ciabatta buns. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about folklore. The book is Folklore Rules. It's a new uh, brief, breezy textbook for uh, 
undergrads, written by Lynn McNeil. She's assistant professor at Utah State University, uh, co-founder and faculty advisor to the USU Folklore Society. Her research interests include digital culture, legend and belief, and teaching folklore. And uh, she's published articles and book chapters on varied subjects, including ghost hunting, animals in folklore, and internet folklore. Earlier in the program, we talked about uh, the subject of her master's thesis, Cats and Folklore, Cats and Superstition. What do the creation myth, jump rope rhymes, 4th of July barbecue, and some bathroom graffiti have in common? Well, it's folklore. It's a subject which is uh, it's a fun subject, useful subject, and hard to define. Uh let me give out the phone number uh, if you'd like to join us, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Lynn McNeil, you made reference to something that uh, it always comes to mind when I think of folklore, because you hear it there. Folklore is that which is not true, mm-hmm. and uh, then everything else, I guess, is true. But, uh, of course, that in itself is not true. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really interesting. Folklore is um, is a strange word because it's a really, really common one. You know, and if we think about the names of other academic disciplines, we don't use them the way that we use the word folklore, linguistics or political science or things. You know, folklore we use um, scoffingly. We say, oh, that's just folklore. You know, when someone tells us, you know, some old wives' tale or folk remedy or, or, you know, something like that. We say, oh, that's just folklore. We use that word very dismissively. Nobody ever says, like, oh, that's just political science, you know, mm-hmm. because there's there, there's that one word, folklore, is being made to do a lot of things when we when we study it academically. Um, and it's a, a lot of students don't quite get immediately that folklore is more like literature than creative writing. You know, a student taking a literature course knows that he or she is going to be studying poetry and novels and short stories, not writing them. And in a folklore class, a lot of students don't know that. They think they're perhaps going to learn storytelling or learn to tell stories rather than learn to interpret and critically analyze stories and and other expressive forms like that. Um, And so when there's that focus on the stuff, on the stories, we tend to see that, that focus on this is hogwash. You know, the the stuff of folklore is the meaningless stuff, the not true stuff. And um, of course, as as the book defines folklore as informal traditional culture, that makes no claims on truth or not truth. Um, folklore isn't always true. Sometimes it is true. And that's really beside the point. When we study folklore, what we're looking at is why is everyone so invested in the possibility that this is the case? Forget whether it is true or not, that's an interesting thing certainly to learn, but why is why are so many people speaking as though this is the case? Why is this story being shared? Um, and oftentimes the the answer is that there is a truth there. You know, fairy tales are a longstanding genre, though it's not a genre of folklore that we share orally with each other anymore. For the most part now we get our fairy tales out of printed texts, but fairy tales are defined by being fiction. You know, once upon a time in a land far, far away is not the same thing as last week in New York. That's where we set our urban legends, right? So, And urban legends we do share orally quite a bit right now. But the fact that we have those two different types of stories um, tells us something. Why do people tell fictional stories that begin once upon a time in a land far, far away knowing them to be fiction? What what genuine truths are embodied there and why do we tell urban legends as though they're true as though it happened last week in Ogden or something like that um 
even though they're not true, what's the what's the value in acting like that's true or questioning whether that is true? So this this issue of truth is really significant. Folklore folklorists have identified a concept that we call the triviality barrier, which is this general idea that folklore is too trivial to be worth studying. Trivial, of course, you know, meaning commonplace, familiar, everyday, unimportant, meaningless. Um, and it's really interesting. Of course, folklore programs are unhappy with this because we want funding and <laughs> supplies and recognition and all of that stuff. But it's also a really serious misunderstanding of the value of the trivial and, and the everyday. And I, I talk about it in the book. If you look at the root of the word trivia, it's about a place where crossroads come together. It's that that central point where three roads, the tri-via, meet. Um, and if you want to gain a general understanding of a group of people, not not an understanding of genius, not a singular, brilliant, successful artist or author or performer, but a general understanding of a body of people, which we definitely think is important in you know economics and anthropology and history and sociology and all of these things indicate that we think understanding groups of people is important, then looking at the stuff that everyone shares is incredibly important. Looking at the trivial, at the stuff that everyone knows, the stuff that the stories that everyone shares, the the jokes, the slang, the art that that we're all capable of producing and sharing and and receiving from other people that's really where a lot of that understanding is going to come from. That's not to say it's not important to study the incredible works of genius and artistry because that's important as well. But everyday expressiveness, the lives of everyday people, the way we make art and tell stories and sing songs and involve ourselves in customs is equally important. I would probably argue more important, but I'm horribly biased because mm -hmm. I'm a folklorist. Yeah. I wonder if you give us a, a specific example. Maybe take ghost stories or, or whatever that you've studied and, and take us through maybe a specific piece of folklore and, and then how you put that in context and then, and then parse out what that means for the culture. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that I study, as you've said, is digital culture um, as well as legend and belief. And we really see the genre of urban legends cropping up on the Internet a lot. And urban is somewhat of a misnomer. It was an early terminology that people used because they were surprised early on to discover that urbanites had folklore. This is as, you know, the field transitioned from seeing folklore belonging to the peasantry and how it the understanding grew to include everyone. So that that moniker stuck as a distinguishing it from rural folklore, though as we all know, urban legends are not unique to urban populations. Rural people and suburban people all know urban legends as well. So folklorists like the term contemporary legend, which targets it much better. Um, and it's a genre that really flourishes online. And one of the most popular ones, um, contemporary legends that's circulating today, and it's been circulating for years actually, is stories that um, people have discovered that Facebook is going to start charging money for its services. And this has been several years now in multiple forms and there's usually a date given as of March 15th 2014 Facebook is going to start charging 9.99 a month for its services and this is not true at all and and oftentimes the amount of detail given in the stories is incredibly specific that there's going to be a tiered plan where you can you know pay this much and get a certain amount of time or you can pay this much more and have unlimited access um, all of this stuff now Facebook 
is aware of this. And if you look at the, the header on Facebook, it actually specifies always free because they are responding to this idea. But so, so as a folklorist, we want to look at this and say, okay, one, it's not true. But that's beside the point. Everyone for years now has been sharing this legend as though it is true. Why? What are we seeing there? And one of the things that we see in any urban legend about corporations is sort of this fear of, of corporate dominance, that we are at the mercy of corporations and that the more engaged we become in caring about a particular business and the services or products it offers us, the more they own us. And I think what we're, what we're seeing in that Facebook legend is not a rejection of Facebook, but an, an acknowledgement of the fact that we'd all pay it. You know, this there, there's an awareness of, man, what would I do if I lost what has almost become a utility comparable to phone service in in my communicative life? Um, there's certainly outrage there. But underneath that outrage is an acknowledgement that, well, we can't not have Facebook. So we'd all have to pay this. Can you believe that they would take advantage of how much they've hooked us in? And and I think we see also a an underlying sentiment of nothing nothing is free, nothing good or nothing useful can be free, that at some point we're all going to get tricked, that, that, you know, this is how corporations treat people. And whether you're going into business or whether you're going into sociology or economics, it's incredibly important to understand that, that nuanced relationship that that legend expresses. It's not enough to say it's not true. Um, it's not enough to educate people that it's not true. I mean, that certainly is important as a step. But more important is, why does it matter? Why would it matter if it were true? What's actually being expressed here? Um, and that's a lot of the work of what folklorists do is understanding, you know, why does this matter? And again, it may seem trivial. Facebook, an urban legend about Facebook, you know, in the face of, you know, the literature from the past and all of this stuff, it seems terribly unimportant. And then you sort of go, okay, but what's impacting our daily lives? You know, what's actually relating to the way we perceive the world? Politics is another great example. There are unbelievable numbers of urban legends out there on all sides of the political spectrum. And um, oftentimes when we encounter political folklore that matches up with our ideology, we don't question it. Not because we're not intelligent, not because we're not, you know, investigative researchers at heart, um, but simply because it fits with the way we think the world works. We look at that and say, yeah, that does sound like something that political candidate would do. I never liked that guy. Mm. And so we don't think it doesn't matter to us if it's true or not, but it's entered our brain. It's filled in part of how we understand it's going to affect how we vote. It's going to affect, you know, what we affiliate ourselves with. It's going to affect genuine parts of our daily lives on, on a much bigger scale than the trivial. And so it's important to understand motivations, communications, and, and meaning behind mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff. Folklore covers, as I'm, I'm thinking about it, covers things that we all do. And you've been talking about one. It also covers some fringe aspects. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, about some of those. I'm thinking about Bigfoot, mm. UFOs, conspiracy theories. We all don't subscribe to those, mm -hmm. but enough of us do, and it's it's persistent enough that it continues. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things we find here is that, and and you're right, that word fringe um, is is definitely applicable here, but it's mainly applicable in 
a real diehard conviction mm-hmm. sense. Um, the There are a lot of people who are absolute true believers in Bigfoot who devote their time to looking for Bigfoot, hunting Bigfoot, um, learning more about Bigfoot. That's actually a small portion of the population. You know, it's if we were to compare it to ghost hunting, say it's a very small percentage of the population that is actually going into haunted buildings or purportedly haunted buildings with Geiger counters and night vision cameras and EMF readers and, you know, laser thermometers and all of these things. That's a very small portion of the population, but we we see that the depth of that fringe element filtering very much into everyday life. Who hasn't heard of Bigfoot? Who hasn't heard of ghost hunting? We all have. I mean, they've filtered into our popular culture. We have television shows about ghost hunting, television shows about Bigfoot, television shows about conspiracy theories. And that's one of the things we tend to find is that real folk belief, the, you know, the beliefs that come to us through word of mouth, through informal culture, very often aren't a case of diehard, tried and true, black and white conviction. It's It exists in the realm of possibilities. It exists in a, I don't know, maybe this could be true. You know, one of the the famous quotes about the fairy folk from Ireland is, well, I don't believe in fairies, but I'm not taking my chances. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, think, I, I think we see a lot of that. You know, there are people who are maintain ambiguity on a lot of these things and then say, but, you know, there was that one time that I was up in Providence Canyon and I saw something that wasn't a bear and it wasn't a deer and it walked like a person, but it was really big and it smelled horrible and... What if it was Bigfoot? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that that seeing folklore in the light of that ambiguity says a lot. You know, legend scholars deal in ambiguity mm-hmm. and not in definitive states of being when it comes to, to belief. And the fact that one of our major contemporarily circulating genres of folklore is about ambiguity is really, really interesting. We are all trying to figure out what's true and and what's not and where we draw the line between science and supernatural and and all of that stuff um and so i think for for most people it's where that fringe element flows into the flows into the mainstream that we see the the majority of of what folklorists are dealing with by the way you've studied uh, ghost hunting folklore mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Have, have you talked to people have you yeah, I have. You got on trips yourself? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, um, I have not actually gone ghost hunting. I should. Um, but no, I, I interviewed people because I was interested in, as a scholar of the supernatural, the way we construct the concept of proof. That's that's what brought me to, to study that was that, you know, being modern scientific rationalist people, we like our truths to be replicable replicable and scientifically consistent and, you know, true under consistent conditions and all that stuff. And that's what a lot of ghost hunters are doing. They're trying to seek that objectivity in something supernatural so they can show that, you know, ghosts show up at a certain, you know, magnetic or electromagnetic frequency or something like that. Um, But what's interesting is in folk belief, the number one form of proof for most people is personal experience. And that's totally the opposite of the scientific process. We don't just say that, you know, scientific principles work, oh, because I experienced it. You know, that that worked for me. Um, it's they're, they're replicable and testable. But, you know, when I ask my students, we'll, we'll look over some of the work of ghost hunters and the ghost photography that they've done, and I'll ask my students, so do you believe now? And they'll say no. 
And I'll say, well, why not? Here's a photograph of a ghost. And you saw that video and the guy told you about it. And, you know, they'll sort of say, well, no, that's not convincing me. And then we'll start hearing people's stories. And it's when someone has an experience. You know, I was walking up the stairs and I felt someone put their hand on my shoulder and I turned around and there was no one there. That's it. You know, that's what creates proof for people of things like the supernatural. Now you combine that with this objective proof of, you know, I felt the hand on my shoulder and right at that moment, that's when this big white, you know, hazy figure appeared in the, you know, video that someone was taking of me walking up those stairs. Wow. You know, that's, we like it when things like that come together. But um, just that search for objective proof is, is really an interesting thing because it pretty much convinces nobody. And the, the conclusion that I came to was that, and, and a lot of the ghost hunters themselves told me they're not in it to prove it to others. They're in it to understand experiences that they themselves have had, to understand their own experiences. And so it really still, even with all that science and technology, comes down to personal experience, which is fascinating to me mm-hmm. at least. We're talking with uh, Lynn McNeil. She is assistant professor uh, is it of English? Um, yeah. Of folklore. folklore. I'm actually my my official title is I'm the director of online programming for the folklore okay. department or the right. folklore program. So, yeah, because <laughs> because often folklore is associated with English. It's, it's yeah. kind of a, a connection. Actually, folklore as a as a discipline uh, grows historically out of English departments as well as anthropology departments. And so, at any given university, you can find it in either. Most of our folklore courses are cross listed English history and anthropology, and it's just sort of a it depends on how the school itself came to folklore, right. and and that more than anything determines what department your folklore program will be found in. Interesting. Uh, Newfoundland, Maritime Canada is a hotbed. We'll talk about that when we come back following a break. Lynn McNeil uh, got her undergrad uh, degree at UC Berkeley, uh, came to Utah State University for uh, the fine folklore program here for her master's. That's where she studied uh, uh, folklore and cats. Still fascinating to me. Might get back to that later in the hour. And uh, then went to uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland for her doctorate. Um, And we're talking about a new book out from USU Press. It's called Folklore Rules. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. More following break. Waste not. Studies show leaking faucets and toilets account for as much as 14% of all indoor water use. That's 10 gallons per person per day. By replacing an old toilet with a new model, the typical household can save up to 21,000 gallons of water per year. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. What do the creation myth, jump rope rhymes, 4th of July barbecue, and some bathroom graffiti have in common? It's folklore. And uh, seeing a need for a brief and a breezy textbook for undergrads, uh, Lynn McNeil, assistant professor at Utah State University, uh, has written uh, such a book, Folklore Rules. 
We're talking about folklore on the program today. You're welcome to join us at 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear your story. Or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Um, the book is out from USU Press. And uh, Lynn McNeil uh, got her Ph.D. in folklore from Memorial University of Newfoundland. If you get into folklore at, at any level, and for me it's on a very surface level, preparing for interviews like this, uh, you notice that there's something about Maritime Canada. What, what's the connection with, with that area of the world and folklore? You know, it's really interesting. A lot of the the contemporary state of folklore studies in, all over the world, and especially in North America, um, it really relies on a bunch of separate, interesting, unique stories. And you find a lot of folklore programs in place where, in places where local traditional cultures have been recognized for a long time, and people are are very conscious, self consciously aware of, hey, we have a traditional culture that is interesting and worth studying. Um, and oftentimes that correlates with um, groups of people with very specific. Um, unique and often somewhat isolated ethnic identities. We see that certainly in the state of Utah with our pioneer culture. The the Mormon pioneers who settled here give us a very clear, significant, you know, bounded identity that certainly in the state of Utah led to a focus on the preservation of that cultural identity. And the the same is true a lot for Atlantic Canada. We see, you know, Nova Scotia, the the New Scotland literally being a place where a traditional culture was purposefully kept intact and intact and purposefully preserved and and focused on and it's in places like this that we see folklore studies programs develop at at the local universities and of course the truth is absolutely everywhere in the entire world has fascinating local traditional cultures worth studying um louisiana is another place where we see that happening with cajun cultures and populations um but you know folklore is a small discipline there are two places in north america where you can earn a phd in folklore, Indiana University and Memorial University of Newfoundland. Um, and so you inevitably learn as a student in folklore a little bit about the folklore of the place where you are. You know, I did not specifically study Newfoundland folklore when I was in Newfoundland. I also didn't specifically study Utah folklore when I was in Utah um, as a student. But 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 you learn it. You know, It becomes the basis of a lot of examples. It, it's a lot of the folklore that students, as they come into class, are already aware of. Or, you know, the students love discovering in folklore classes that they already know some folklore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not they, – they don't have to read it to then be able to think about it. They show up with – even if they didn't know it was folklore, they find out soon enough. Mm-hmm. And then can, can get on with sort of the, the cultural and social – analysis part of it but um yeah it is it's interesting to see and certainly that shows up in the book that Mm. you know there are utah examples there are newfoundland examples Mm. i like to imagine that anyone who knew me would guess i wrote this book if they read it without knowing who had written it but (laughs) what if you take an example say um mormon culture Mm -hmm. so coming from the outside you grew up in california right Mm -hmm. went to uc berkeley Mm -hmm. come out uh, to utah because of uh, a fine folklore program Mm -hmm. here uh, and and you say you didn't study specifically Mormon culture, but it's it's going to seep in, right? Yeah. So, for example, funeral potatoes. What, yeah. What, what do you what do you make of that? Is you, you know what funeral potatoes are a perfect example of the way that folklore can be religious in the sense of pertaining to a religious community without having any religious significance at all. I mean, it's funeral potatoes are not a sacred food. They're not made for holy days or anything like that. But outside of Utah. 
you simply don't know. I mean, you might make potato dishes that are surprisingly similar, um, but the dish itself and the name funeral potatoes, and I've heard people offer some other names for when it's not a funeral. You can call them cheesy potatoes or things like that. I'd love to know if anyone has other names for funeral potatoes. Um, and it certainly extends beyond the you know geographic specific boundaries of Utah and into Idaho and Arizona and parts as well. Um, but as an outsider to Utah, for me, learning that stuff, learning the stuff of folklore, more than the study of it, outside of learning to analyze and interpret, but just learning the folk culture of Utah is what made me feel that I was becoming local. I was growing into this place. And and folklore is an enormous part of anyone feeling at home in a certain place. As you know the customs, you know the stories, you know, you know you're a Utahan when you know what funeral potatoes are. And not because you Googled it. You know, not because and there is a Wikipedia page for Utah funeral potatoes that identify them as an LDS food type, um, which is wonderful. Um, But when you learn folk culture, again, not institutional culture, you know, I mean, if we if we're thinking of the folk culture of Utah State University, yeah, you can have an A number and a transcript and be registered through banner and all of those required student things. But it's knowing what a true Aggie is or knowing what a true blue Aggie is. Or, you know, participating in homecoming customs, all of these things, having heard all the urban legends about which rooms are least safe to be in in an earthquake. um, That's what lets you know you're a member of this campus community, visiting the weeping woman statue in the cemetery. And when it comes to group identity, that matters way more than having an A number. Someone who's never been to campus can have an A number, you know. Um, and, And that's something... That, that we see happening a lot. So for me, as a total outsider to Utah, um, I had never lived outside of California. I had never lived outside of the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so my first stop is Logan, Utah. And I found it incredibly welcoming and, and incredibly friendly. And the fact that I was conveniently surrounded by Utah folk culture really helped in that understanding. So those are a lot of the examples that I go to, you know, with mm. with my students are Utah Utah traditions like funeral potatoes, green jello, fry sauce, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And in fact, one of the customs, I when I'm talking about customs in the book, um, I talk about a particular Newfoundland rite of passage where tourists, outsiders to Newfoundland, um, are made honorary Newfoundlanders mm-hmm. through a ceremony known as the Screech Inn. And Screech is a particular brand of rum uh, from Newfoundland that is famously terrible to drink, though in truth I think it's won a few awards, mm-hmm. though Newfoundlanders keep that on the down low mm-hmm. so that everyone continues to think it's horrible. Um, and it involves drinking this local rum and eating some really gross local foods and kissing a giant dead codfish. Codfishing in Newfoundland are very closely tied um, culturally and economically, usually wearing a silly hat, a traditional Newfoundlander's outfit. And we see in that an over-the-top symbolism of place, of the local folk understanding of a place like Newfoundland. Um, So oftentimes I'll ask my students, what would you do to make someone an honorary Utahn? Or what would you do, you know, how would you design that ceremony? What would someone have to do, you know, some outsider from, you know, New Jersey or something comes to visit Utah, we want to make them an honorary Utah. What would they eat? What would they wear? What silly thing would they have to recite? And funeral potatoes, fry sauce, green jello, those things, you know, crop up a a whole lot in our, again, totally stereotypical, 
view of of Utah culture. That's not. It's. I don't eat funeral potatoes every day. Neither do most Utahns I know. But but we share it as a as a sort of marker of cultural identity. Hmm. That's maybe an idea to pass on the Utah Tourism Bureau. Hmm. That's. But uh, yeah, that, that is that is very interesting. Well, we could talk more. We've reached the end of our uh, time. Uh, Folklore Rules is the book. It's out from USU Press. Lynn McNeil is assistant professor at Utah State University. She's co-founder and faculty advisor of the USU Folklore Society and uh, got her master's here at uh, Utah State University, PhD in folklore from Memorial University of uh, Newfoundland. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to reach back in history, a time of the progressive era. It's not uh, very different from our own. In fact, a lot of similarities. Gap between rich and poor never been wider. Legislative stalemate paralyzes the country. Corporations resist federal regulations. Those are headlines from the early 1900s. Acclaimed historian Doris Kearns Goodwin is my guest. Her new book is The Bully Pulpit. She uh, does a joint biography of Teddy Roosevelt and his vice president, William Howard Taft. Doris Kearns Goodwin, The Bully Pulpit, tomorrow on Access Utah. Hope you'll join us then. For uh, producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Now that the leaves have fallen from the deciduous trees, we can fully appreciate Utah's evergreen trees. Conifers are trees that bear their seeds in cones instead of producing flowers and fruits. Utah has five kinds of conifers, all with stiff, needle-like leaves that remain green throughout the winter. Traits of their needles and cones allow you to distinguish between our different types of conifers. Cones can be found still attached or scattered on the ground. I will start with the junipers. These conifers have scaly, slightly fleshy leaves. Juniper seeds are embedded in a cone that resembles a green berry. The cones are round and densely fleshy. Junipers are widely adaptable here, from arid foothills to rocky alpine slopes. Our pines collectively span the same elevation range. They are the only conifers that have cylindrical needles bundled in clusters of two to five. The one exception to this is single-leaf pinyon, which as you might guess has single round needles. Spruces are conifers that many recognize from their own yards. The spruce needle leaves a peg on the stem when it drops, which gives their twigs a rough, nubbly surface. Spruces grow in a classic pyramidal shape. Another montane group is the true firs. Their flat needle attaches smoothly to the twig. True firs have uniquely upright cones that gradually disintegrate without dropping to the ground. Crushed fir needles are wonderfully fragrant. Douglas fir, despite its common name, is in a different genus than the true firs. Its cones are distinctive, having long, three-pointed, papery bracts that project out from amid the cone scales. Douglas fir is one of the West's most valuable timber trees. Like the spruces and firs, it is a montane species. Conifer trees are a great resource for Utah wildlife, providing food and shelter, especially in the icy cold of winter. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Thank you.
Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah comes from the College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Information is at cnr.usu.edu. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made, is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Introducing Pumpernickel Rye and Pan de Mie. This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department. How do you know if it's safe to go outside when PM2 levels are elevated? The cause of our unhealthy air is particulate pollution that is 2.5 micrograms or smaller. Often you'll hear this called PM2.5. While it's still okay for most people to go outside on these days, everyone is different and health decisions should be made on actual pollution levels and individual sensitivity. For those who are more vulnerable to air pollution, such as children, those with asthma, heart or lung conditions, or the elderly, care should be taken to stay indoors. Reducing outside activity when pollution reaches high levels will reduce short-term health effects. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Did you know that positive coping strategies can help slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So, if you're a caregiver, take care of yourself, count your blessings, and ask for help when you need it. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu.